This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. This is Bill Lloyd. You're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Crusoe. Catchy jangle harmonies, killer chord changes, and tasty power pop licks. Raised in Nashville but smitten by the sounds of Liverpool and beyond. That's the music of songwriter and primo guitarist Bill Lloyd. Let's listen. He was born just a little too late in the 20th century. Welcome to Songwriter Stories. Hello, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. I want to start out sort of the beginning for you. Um, I've got you down as forming the duo Foster and Lloyd in 1986. Is that the right date? Yeah, that's, that's pretty close. Um, I think we both were signed as staff songwriters to MTM Music in 1985. And as being two of the younger writers there, we gravitated towards each other and started writing together pretty pretty much immediately uh, when we met. And uh, it was sort of weird how it came together because we were both just staff writers and other people started cutting the songs that we wrote together. But when we put together a, uh, back then, like a cassette of uh, all the songs that we'd written, uh, all the demos had uh, mostly Radney singing and me playing and singing harmony. And it could be songs that we wrote together or songs that uh, I wrote that he sang for me or songs that he wrote that he had me play and sing on. And uh, it's like we had our first album sort of already done in demo form. And that's how we ended up getting a record deal out of it. What musical experience and personal and professional associations led to you meeting Radney? What were you doing musically? Had you written a lot of songs? Well, I was already in Nashville and had already had uh, been in a couple different bands and had some local success on the uh, Vanderbilt radio station, which at the time was very typical for college radio in the 80s. It was uh, the station was called WRVU. They would put together uh, these you know compilations of local artists, and I was on a couple different ones of those. And 
I used to get a lot of airplay on the on the college radio station in town. So and I could fill a club up at that time just doing my own thing. And I was working towards my first solo record. And that actual first solo record that I made called Feeling the Elephant came out actually before Foster and Lloyd's record came out. But they were both sort of being worked on simultaneously there for a while. I also had another project with John Cowan from the band Newgrass Revival, and we were doing some more pop kind of uh, funky kind of stuff with him. <laughs> and that, But that was never a, a project. Uh, I mean, that never got to be in project mode. It was just song demos. But uh, yeah, I, when Randy and I met, we were both at Mary Tyler Moore, and, and, uh, and that was a really good place. One of the first things you guys had success with was Since I Found You. Yeah, we, we co-wrote that, and we did a demo of it, and the uh, a group called Sweethearts the Rodeo covered it, and uh, it was a hit, and that was very exciting for us. Did that lead to the signing? It sure helped. You know, it's like uh, we started getting inquiries that whether we wanted to make a record of our own. And uh, that's what sort of led, you know, having other people cut our songs. In fact, Crazy Over You was cut by Ricky Van Shelton before we did the record version ourselves. And it was on an album of his that did real well, but uh, it was never a single for him. So it, when we signed with RCA, it became our first single and, and still our biggest song together. My first album was on RCA, 1987 is what I wrote down. Mm -hmm, that's correct. And number 33 on the Top Country Albums chart, three of the album's singles made the top 10. Mm -hmm. It's described as country rock with virtuoso guitar licks, plain spoken lyrics, and vocal harmonies. I read that. Well, that's not too far off. Radney sang most of the lead vocals? Yeah, Radney has a, uh, a great country voice, and, and uh, the, the sound that we had together was mostly him singing lead and me singing harmonies. Although, you know, I think I had two on the second album, one on the first and one on the third. And you produced yourselves. Yeah, that was kind of wild. Uh, we kind of reached out into the people that we thought would, might be cool. And what's so funny is that two of the people I didn't know at the time, or just knew from afar, knew from a distance that we reached out to for production. One was Gary Talent from E Street Band, who had just produced Marshall Crenshaw for... Uh, the soundtrack to um, La Bamba, and uh, and he had he had produced Marshall, and we thought, oh, well, he he's in Springsteen's band, he he might get what we do, and uh, through mutual friends, we called him, and he was busy, he couldn't do it, and Don Dixon was another uh, who uh, we reached out to, and we realized, you know, that the budget that we had, we just probably were better off going in ourselves, and they gave us that option and that's what we did we worked with great engineers uh along the way um a guy named ed say spelled his name s-e-a-y and uh ed was a great engineer and he helped us uh get it together for that first album that we did but yeah i mean the arrangements the uh the the way the songs worked you know uh, that was a self-production thing well it sounds fantastic as we go through these uh albums and titles of both your duo stuff and your solo stuff. Uh, feel free to expand on anything. Tell us details about how they were written or how the collaboration worked or how easy or hard they were to write or certain songwriting problems you came across, okay? And how you solved them. Okay, okay. There's a track that you opened up with called Turn Around. It's a really nice opener, and it's not really that country.
One of the things that all my friends and I like about your group is that you don't have to love country to like your stuff. Your music is just easy to love. And there's a little bit of a twang sometimes, a little bit of a southern drawl on the vocal. But you don't have to love country to like your music. I love that. Well, thank you. You know, R R the way Radney sings, it's, you know, you, it's going to be country sounding mm -hmm. from his vocal. Uh, but the songs and arrangements were really a whole lot of classic pop and rock kind of mixed in there. Uh, you mentioned Turnaround, and, you know, that's very much a kind of a Birds, Everly Brothers kind of feel to it. And uh, mm -hmm. those were all things I listened to and were really kind of obsessed with, <laughs> actually, you know. You guys harmonized really well together. Well, thank you. Crazy Over You was the first single, and it went to number four. Actually, that went number one on every chart but Billboard. Uh, the Cashbox, uh, Radio and Records, all the other charts that were out at the time, that went all the way to the top, but Billboard only had it at number four. What do they know? Yeah, what do they know? They're the, they're the survivor, though. They're the ones who are still around. The other ones aren't. Uh, but uh, that was a big hit, and then just came for us right out of the box, and we were very surprised and just kind of couldn't believe our luck. You have a song on there called um, What Do You Want From Me This Time? It was a single. It was number six. And um, it changes time signatures. Now, you might have to walk me through this. When it comes to country, and maybe I'm going to use a word that is out of my vocabulary, two-step, uh -huh. does it go from 2-4 to 1-4 at places in that song? It has some short bars in there. You know, there was a lot of that going around at the time. There were other songwriters doing the same kind of thing. John Lennon would do that in the Beatles, you know, in a lot of his songwriting would have a lot of short bars, and uh, the way you'd have to count it would be less than logical. <laughs> well, my brother's a drummer, uh -huh. and he never counts when there's changing time signatures. It's almost better not to. In Bacharach, even when Bacharach writes for his orchestra, he writes English words right in the music to tell people how to interpret where that goes. Well, that's, that's interesting. I'd never heard that story before. That's a great one, because uh, I'm a huge Bacharach fan. I have a song on one of my records. Uh, there was a, an acoustic record I made a few years ago uh, called It's Happening Now. And on that album is a song called Happiness, which is uh, musically inspired by Burt Bacharach. I'm just a huge fan of his. Got to see him live a couple years back, and it was something. She wants the one thing I don't have to give. That's my heart that I'm holding on to. Until I let go and live, I'll not have someone to belong to. Happiness is much of a choice as a chance. You simply decide that you'll dance this time. That's gorgeous. I hear some Ben Folds in there, too. Getting back to your first Foster and Lloyd album, let's talk about another single. This one went to number eight, called Sure Thing.
was one of my favorite songs from that album. We wrote that on a spring day out on a patio, and uh, we were very pleased with ourselves because it was very Everly Brothers kind of song. And then uh, the modulation at the end, we uh, we were working that out and we were just really pleased with ourselves that we did that. But it was a it was a nice record. I always loved that record. The pedal steel on there by Bruce Bowden is uh, especially nice. Mm-hmm. You know, during the seventies, this first Foster and Lloyd album would have been treated as a pop crossover album. In AM radio's heyday, these songs would have been played right alongside Glenn Campbell. Or in the eighties, you could have been played alongside the Stray Cats. This is great music, not just great country music. Well, I appreciate that. You know, the kind of marketing that RCA did. They were pitching us to college radio as well. And I remember when the, the second album came out, which was called Faster and Louder, and it was spelled uh, L-L-O-U-D-E-R, sort of a play on my name. And, uh, you know, that that record had some really kind of rock and roll sort of sounds to it. It's much more of a rock and roll record than even the first one. But we were, we were playing honky-tonks and we were playing rock clubs and kind of went back and forth. Tell us about the collection of tracks that became the first Bill Lloyd solo album called Feeling the Elephant. Feeling the Elephant, all those tracks were recorded between like 82 and 85. And uh, it didn't come out on a record until 86. The first label that put it out was uh, a label out of Boston called Throbbing Lobster. And uh, that was a very cool indie indie label at the time. They'd been profiled in Spin Magazine and they put out some really cool records. And then uh, a year or two later, a label out of Atlanta called DB Records that originally had Love Tractor and B-52s, they put it out again because it wasn't on CD. And at that time, CDs were big. And when it was initially released, it was only on final LP. This album title, Feeling the Elephant, and the song title of the same name, comes from a famous parable. Well, um, I can tell you that I did not give the parable right away. When I heard the phrase, uh, actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the bluegrass band, the Dillards, but the Dillards were a Los Angeles-based group that played the Darlin family on the Andy Griffiths show. Uh-huh. Uh, and But they made very cool kind of bluegrassy pop kind of records uh, for Elektra and for other labels throughout the 60s and into the 70s. And I actually pitched the song to Rodney Dillard, and I met him over at Doug Dillard's apartment, which was close to mine at the time. And uh, Rodney, in, just in conversation, was talking about the music business and how hard it was for them to kind of fit in being a bluegrass band in a country world or a pop world. And, um, and he used the phrase blind and feeling the elephant. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a really great line. And I, I remembered, you know, the parable of the blind man and the elephant. And I just thought, well, that's a, that's a good one. So the idea behind the parable is that a group of blindfolded people are allowed to touch only one part of an elephant, say the tusk or the tail or the hoof, and they all describe what they think it is that they're feeling, and the results are radically different interpretations of the truth. Yeah, it's a wall, or it's a piece of rope. This title could also describe the process of feeling out a song as you're writing it, or the differing interpretations of the listeners. So the listeners like, I think this song is this, and I think this song is that. It's kind of cool how it can grow into that. It's very open-ended that way. When it was played a lot on the local radio station in Nashville back in the 80s, I remember one night having some kids from Vanderbilt call me. They found my number in the phone book, and they wanted to know if it was about Reaganomics, (laughs) which, you know, (laughs) elephant being the Republican Party. And, uh, and I went, no, but, you know, it is kind of a metaphor for life that we really don't see everything. We, uh, we only get what, what we get, you know, and uh, seldom does anyone get the full picture. And so that's kind of what it's about. That can apply to songs. It can apply to really anything. Sure. 
What can you tell us about your song, This Very Second? Oh, it's just about immediacy. I like having songs that are about the moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've written several like that, actually. I have another song called It's Happening Now. It's about being in the moment. And it's just, so it's just really about immediacy. Here's my reply to Lisa Ann. How can I make you understand? I let this slip right through my hands. Oh, Lisa Ann. Remember when you left me behind? I was in love and love is blind. I nearly went out of my mind. Lisa Ann, you've got a line that says, I've got a hole in my life the size of your apartment. The next time it comes around, it's got a hole in my heart the size of your jacuzzi. It's just one of those pop songs. I think I wrote that song three different times with different lyrics and uh, finally just ended up on a girl's name. 1989, Faster and Louder, could have been Foster and Louder <laughs> with two L's. That was the joke, Foster and Lloyd, Faster and Louder. And we even spelled the louder with two L's, so. It's nice. And you've got uh, that song on, on the album as well? Yeah, that was the opening track. And uh, Marshall Crenshaw came and played on a song called She Knows What She Wants, did the solo, and we had other guests as well. Vince Gill was on all of our records. He's a, you know, obviously a country superstar now, but at the time he was just one of our label mates and a pal. The famed dobro player Jerry Douglas would come in and play la uh, lap seal and things for us. And uh, so we were always able to score a few uh, guest artists that were, uh, you know, and 30 years later, even bigger now than they were at the time. She Knows What She Wants is a prime example of a song that if you took away the southern vocal delivery and the slide guitar, you just got a solid pop song. To me, that's the secret sauce of Foster and Lloyd. She knows what she That marriage was kind of what the what the sound was all about, uh, and that's kind of why we only made three albums. I mean, we did one many years later. We did do a reunion record, but uh, you know, the sound was really happening at the time. But uh, soon, wind starts blowing from another direction, and times changed, and and uh, ran with it as long as we could. Did you think that RCA generally understood the value of your DNA? Yeah, I thought they, they gave us a lot of rope to hang ourselves with. You know, we, we were able to produce our own records. And, you know, they weren't pitching outside songs to us all the time. They knew we were songwriters. So I thought we had an amazing amount of freedom. You and Ratney released a third Foster and Lloyd album with RCA in 1990 called Version of the Truth, which kind of brings us back to that whole idea of feeling the elephant. This is a theme that's really worth revisiting, you know, especially in these times of what Stephen Colbert called truthiness. Yeah, certainly applies to now, doesn't it? I don't need another version of the truth. You're still thinking I want you. And that's your version of the truth. After all that we've gone through, I remember things just a little different than you. And your version of the truth. I love that. And I love the bridge, which is, baby, your memory's got a little rusty. Because every time you've left me, you were saying, trust me. And then the soloist quotes a little variation of Dixie. Every time you left me, I knew you were saying, trust me. Every time you left me, I don't remember that, but yeah, well, well, okay, uh, I, there was no conscious uh, thing about Dixie there, but uh, the song, uh, it's just in relationships, you know, uh, especially when they're on the outs and, they're, and you're not in the middle of it anymore, 
everybody, I think, tends to remember the relationship the way they want. And so uh, I think that's what the song was about, was just people walking away from a situation. And then there's always his side, her side, and then something else that really happened. <laughs> right. I'm a big fan of short lyric phrases that fit together nicely to the music. And you've got the song, It's Over, which you co-wrote. Long walk, short tear, we're over the edge, my dear. Push came to shove, I guess we fell out of love. It sank or swim, too late to go back again. No good to cry when you know that it's over. Well, thank you. That that I had already brought that one to Radney, and I already had that part already written and had some of the music already written. And he helped on the bridge part. Well, he must have known when he heard that that was going to be worth doing something with. Yeah, well, we both, you know, there are things he had big parts of already that I helped him with. And, uh, I mean, there's, sometimes I wouldn't take credit, like the lick on Texas in 1880 is mine, but I didn't put my name on it because it was just a guitar lick. But, uh, you know, if we really put time in to each other's songs, it was a co-write. And most of them were. You know, you end the album with a song called Woe, and it's uh, instrumental, and it gets nominated for a Grammy. The group had pretty much already broken up from what I've heard from your interviews. And uh, I know a little bit about how Grammy voting process works. You don't just win a Grammy randomly. How did your Grammy come about? Um, well, someone at RCA apparently pitched it to the Academy. At that time, we hadn't announced our breakup. We had not you know, made that public or anything. And uh, mm -hmm. so it's, it was kind of funny being at the Grammy Awards and we already split up, you know. But uh, it was really nice for that to get the notice that it did because just the, the band that we put together for that was astounding, really. It was Dwayne Eddy and Albert Lee wow. and Rusty Young from Poco and uh, Gary Talent from the E Street Band, Felix Cavallari from the Rascals. It was just loaded with great people. It was kind of a special thing for us and, uh, and I was really glad that it got noticed enough to be up for a Grammy. Your music was heavily covered. Um, you, I think Trisha Yearwood, Beth Nielsen Chapman, Tanya Tucker, Sarah Evans. We were really lucky to get uh, Foster and Lloyd had covers and then later you know I had covers that a lot of people that would cover my songs or I would co-write with somebody who had a hit. One big one that isn't so much remembered right now was the Sanko Boom It Was Over by Robert Ellis Oral. And uh, that really got a lot of airplay and, and did real well. Uh, I, I mean, I even got one of those BMI million plays thing awards for it. But I mean, it's not as remembered now. Mm -hmm. Being in Nashville and co-writing, that's just part of what, what goes on around here. In 1994, you released your second solo album, Set to Pop, and Marshall Crenshaw contributed some guitar work and a guest vocal on the song, I Went Electric. There were some great people on that record. Jody Stevens from the band Big Star played drums on a couple cuts. Mm. Al Cooper, the famous, uh, you know, session man and producer and stuff. He, he was living in Nashville and we were friends. He played some keys on the record. Uh, even had Pat Simmons from the Doobie Brothers doing uh, some background vocals at one point. And during that same time, early 90s, I was trying to get this country band together. And I say country very loosely. It was... Uh, it was signed to a country label, but it was po it was Rusty Young from Poco and Pat Simmons of the Doobies and John Cowan from Newgrass Revival and myself. They ended up being called the Sky Kings. Mm -hmm. And we did two different records on two different labels, one for RCA, one for Warner Brothers. And country radio just never bit on, on either project on two different labels. It just didn't fly. And now those are available to buy. 
Well, you know, you can find uh, the RCA record is available as a digital download. Uh, it's called 1992 is the name of it. And then the uh, the Warner Brothers stuff came out on Rhino Handmade. And I don't know. I think that's harder to find. Set to Pop, I kind of did while I was waiting for the Sky Kings to take off, which, of course, it never did. But uh, Set to Pop got some good attention. I got a, a notice from uh, Stereo Reviews, one of their albums of the year. And, and uh, it got written up in a lot of places and had really great critical success. And and actually sold some copies and got some radio airplay, too, which was nice. One of the fun things about it is you had lots of little um, interludes that you stuck between songs. You have Highway to Pegram, which is a, a variation on ACDC's Back in Black. <laughs> with with mandolins. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Pegram is this little town just outside of Nashville. And, and, uh, and we were just, it was just a little jokey thing to put in between. Well, then on what might be the run-out groove of a vinyl album, you added a three and a half minutes of uh, audio surprises interspersed with silence. Yeah, yeah, you you, you listened all the way through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Well, I, I could see that there was time left, and I'm like, well, he did that for a reason. Let's see what we got here. But this gives the album character. Yeah, that was like the big thing back then, wasn't it? Yeah, Apollo 18, uh, They Might Be Giants did it with... Uh, a little medley called Fingertips, and they made all their tracks different um, tracks. So even though it's only a couple seconds long, if you play the album on shuffle, all these little tiny songs would come out, you know, so it's kind of cool. That's amazing. I'll have, to, I'll have to go back and listen to that. On the song All Right, which you wrote by yourself, it's a glorious struggle. I looked it over and held it up to the light. I checked it out, and this time it came out all right. That's great. Really like it. Oh, glad you like it. You really listen to the lyrics. I, I'm happy about that because uh, uh, a lot of people sort of, especially in the kind of the power pop world, uh, it's all about the sound and the style. And uh, I like it when people pay attention to the lyrics. And also your titles are great, which we're going to talk about too. You clearly pay attention to them. You don't tack them on at the end. Yeah, most of the time there's a title to start with. Most of the time. Some, but sometimes you end up writing a whole lyric and then you kind of figure out what the title might be on the back end. But most of the time you start off with one, or at least I do. The Man Who Knew Too Much, which you co-write with Marshall Crenshaw, did you consciously sing a little bit in his style? I, I think the melody is partly his. So uh, when we wrote that, we, I, we wrote that actually together and not through the mail or something like that. I know there are a lot of people... And I've written a lot of songs long distance with people, but we were actually in the room together. So I think when you when the melody is partially his, you know, or or maybe mostly. I don't. I'd have to go back and listen again. But uh, you know, because of Marshall's melodies are so strong, and and uh, and he sings them in a certain way. That once he sings it, that's that's what the melody is. So it's, of course it's gonna it's gonna sound like him. What can you tell us about working with him? Well, I'm just a huge fan of his. I was a huge fan of his before I ever met him. And uh, we met through Bug Music. Uh, he was signed to Bug as a writer, and I was friends with the, the Bug Office people here in Nashville. It was a Rolling Stone review of, of the first Foster and Lloyd album, and it mentioned that parts of it sounded a little like Marshall Crenshaw. And that's not far off because I was listening to Marshall a lot. And later on, Marshall would come and sit in with us. We played the bottom line, and we had learned one of his songs called Lesson Number One that we used to do live all the time. And he came and sang it with us. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just a real fan of, of him and as a person and also for his music, especially he's one of the best melodists, you know, out there. He just, he can, he can sneeze a great melody. 
<laughs> you guys worked really well together. When I saw the title SWAT Team of Love, I'm like, okay, that's going to just be a, a gimmicky song. I'm not going to enjoy it. It's very surprisingly a great idea about door-to-door -door proselytizing. The SWAT Team of Love are out on my lawn. I cannot decide whose side that they're on. They're handing out pamphlets in black leather gloves. With God on their side, they're the SWAT Team of Love. You know, people tend to get militant about their worldview, and we're seeing it again. I have another song called The Fix Is In, which is a little bit of a political commentary. I don't generally write a lot of political or politically inspired songs, but, but uh, SWAT Team of Love is one of them, and another one called The Fix Is In, which is on a later record, are both definitely commentaries on social unrest and politics and things like that. Who deserves more than a tip of a hat? Well, I got no problem with that. It's you all who came first in the gap. The rules were breaking. I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants. Who was standing on the shoulders of giants? So we're paying. Shoulders of Giants. 1999, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, another solo album. And you have so many good writers with you on this. Marshall Crenshaw, Amy Rigby, Bill DeMaine, Kim Ritchie, Tom Peterson, Dennis Dyken, Al Cooper, and Brad Jones. Al Anderson from NRBQ was on there, too. Al was songwriter of the year here in Nashville uh, for having written just a ton of hits. And, uh, but he was the guitar player in NRBQ for, for many years. This is kind of an underground feeling in a way because all these people that you mentioned that are all Nashville or were here, like Amy's not here anymore. But, uh, you know, it was kind of a like-minded scene, you know, where a bunch of us were doing things, but it wasn't really part of the mainstream of Nashville. So uh, a lot of the people that, that you've mentioned there, I think many of them are just genius writers and stuff, but uh, it's not like uh, all these people walked away millionaires from writing songs. Although Al, Al Anderson certainly did. A lot of the group that you, you mentioned there, are, it, was, it was like we were all friends and we all worked together, but uh, um, it wasn't mainstream Nashville. I like the bold way you start off the song and the album, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, with that a cappella vocal line. Oh, thank you. It reminds me of the opening line to I Hope You're Happy Now by Elvis Costello. Oh, yeah, I remember that record. I was real proud of that record. I made that record for Koch Records. And uh, I was really pleased with the songs on that. Cool and Gone was one that uh, I really liked. A hundred million years ago Running to the record store All out of breath I caught my death for you But that was me inside your song Now it feels like something's wrong Like somehow you let me down No queen left to wear that Jeff Foskett, who played with Beach Boys and Brian Wilson for years did a really nice cover of that. And I co-wrote that with my buddy David Surface, and I had a band before I moved to Nashville called Sergeant Arms, and uh, and David was my co-writing partner in that band. So we're still writing together, and it's been, you know, writing together since we were teenagers, so 
50 years and counting, I guess, you know. Sweet. Dr. Robert's Second Opinion, another one of those great titles, kind of a Beatles callback. Yeah, I like the fact that uh, also that I had a, a Cheap Trick Smithereens rhythm section on that. Dennis Dyken played drums and Tom Peterson played bass, so I had a all-star rhythm section there. And is that Henry Gross from the song Shannon that did the background vocals? Uh-huh, yeah. Wow, that's great. What yes. a lineup. Yeah. I grew up with Shannon, so. Yeah, it's a great song. And Henry's a, a great guy. I, we stay in good touch. Well, more than a few of your albums have over 10 songs. And looking at your total songwriting output and not counting re-releases or alternate recordings, you're pretty prolific. But, you know, how does that feel to you? Do you feel like you are? I write all the time. In fact, I, I kind of wait for it to come to me. I used to be one of those daily writers who would go in and have an appointment with somebody and try to come up with something. And I still do that from time to time. But when it comes to the music that I make for my records, uh, I kind of wait for it to come to me. And whether a, a chord progression or a, a title idea or or mostly just song ideas. And I, I've been writing a lot in more recent years where I'll have like maybe a couple verses written of a lyric, and then I'll try to put that to music. Just because it seems to me stronger to come from a lyrical point to start with, and that way uh, you've got a real idea there, and you're not trying to struggle to find meaning, you know, in a song. If you start with the music you, and, and you have a melody, then you're kind of stuck with the rhyme scheme, and you're kind of stuck with trying to make it fit to the melody that you have. And sometimes if you if you start with the lyric, then you can uh, branch out and make it more interesting, I think. Bill, how about you pick a song for us from your 2004 release, Back to Even? There's a song on there that I, I recut later. as called The World's a Different Place Without You, and that was inspired by losing a, a family member many years ago. But I've since used that in various situations at memorials and things like that. That's one that kind of keeps coming back. It is so good. Thank you. I'll have what you're having From the night before the morning after Cause that's how it was At least what I remember A midnight kitchen full of laughter Taken away Ready or not I never took the time to say All I forgot I thought that I knew The one thing I know that's true The world's a different place without you Back to even the title track I co-wrote with Don Henry, and uh, I like that song a whole lot. I had some good players on that record, too. Uh, the drummer, Ken Coomer from Wilco, and Robert Reynolds from The Mavericks was the bass player. That was a rhythm section that got used on about four or five tracks on that album. I see Peter Case co-wrote one with you. He's from the Plimsolls. Oh, yeah. Peter and I wrote uh, for the longest time, and uh, Peter sang harmony and played some harmonica on it. And I'll be getting to see Peter at the end of this month because uh, there's this big lo uh, Loving Spoonful tribute out in Los Angeles. And I'm flying out for that. And Peter's on the bill. Marshall's on the bill. 
Don Dixon's on the bill. Uh, oh, Don, Don Dixon played on a song on Back to Even called uh, Me Against Me, and uh, Don played bass on that. Oasis uh, closes out the album, and um, I think it's really well recorded just the way it is, but I also think it would be nice to hear as a solo performance with just one instrument and vocal. Have you done it that way? I haven't, no. Um, you know, the the band Oasis had an album called Standing on the Shoulders of, of Giants, uh, plural shoulders, about a year and a half after mine came out. That was kind of, a, can I just say it? It was kind of a kick in the nuts, you know? <laughs> I wasn't pleased when I saw that. I couldn't believe that uh, somebody else had come up with the same title. But I, mine, mine came out about a year and a half before. And I had a song that used the, the phrase, which is a, uh, it was attributed to uh, Sir Isaac Newton. If I've seen any farther than my contemporaries, it's only because I stood on the shoulders of giants was what, you know, the quote was. And uh, and this in the song that I wrote was just about kind of honoring uh, all the people you steal from when you're writing a song. It's about the songwriting process. Uh, now, I'm I'm not really sure what uh, Noel Gallagher had on his end, but I, did, I can't remember if they had a song with that, but they did use that 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 title. Uh, I think it's written on the side of a British coin, so mm -hmm. it kind of came from two different places. But they're uh, they're a huge uh, huge band, and uh, so mine kind of got shuffled over to the side there. Nick Lowe, I remember years ago, did a an EP called uh, B O W I Bowie uh -huh. because David Bowie had put out a record called Lowe, spelled L O W, and as a joke, Nick put out B O W I, right, leaving the E off, you know. And I just thought that was hilarious. It is hilarious. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. So anyway, after uh, Oasis took my "Standing on the Shoulders of Giants" title, I don't think they took it from me. I think it just it was just happenstance. But but uh, after it got used in that way, I, I decided to write a song called Oasis, just because. And uh, I like the Nothing Can Erase This Oasis of Love. And it's just about keeping something personal alive, keeping something in your heart. A desert sun with miles to run and not a drop to drink. That was somehow we started out, no matter what you think. As I look back, the nights were black. But stars still shone above Nothing can erase this oasis of love Daylight brings a million things The lion disarray Well, who are they talking to? The Boy King of Tokyo actually came from a, a very real place. I was born in Texas, but I was uh, the first few years of my life I lived in Tokyo, Japan. My dad ran uh, one of the officers' clubs over there, and uh, so I have all these great photo albums of me as a real young child with all these Japanese people. Mm -hmm. And you know, apparently, when my parents were out, you know, working or doing whatever they were doing. It was, you know, nannies and and uh, neighbors and things like that. And I was spending a lot of time with all the, it seems like all the pictures in these books were me with, uh, with uh, whoever's taking care of me. Mm -hmm. And it's just, uh, I made up this song since I really don't, my parents are gone now, so I don't have any uh, way to ask anybody. So I just made up a song called Boy King of Tokyo. And there's a video for it too on YouTube that's, uh, that my friend Steve did that was really nice. Oh, look for that. I like the lyric. The, the lyric does tell a story. Yeah, well, thanks. It's, uh, you know, it's it's about 7% true. and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> But it feels true. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> like uh, Colbert. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the, uh, uh, the Boy King of Tokyo album, though, is one that I 
specifically tried to do an album where I played everything myself and I wrote everything myself. I wanted it to be like a, one of those Todd Rundgren records or uh, Emmett Rhodes. So is a total solo album. Just about anybody who ever picked up a guitar or anybody who appreciates great guitar work is going to love Chet's Right Hand Man. You know, I, uh, I wrote that specifically to have to play. I was working for about three years. I, I worked in the archive at the Country Music Hall of Fame as a stringed instrument curator. Went through everything they had down there and did a Excel spreadsheet on it and also wrote articles on the guitars and hosted programs down there. And uh, um, I got to play with Chet Atkins on stage once, but uh, I really didn't know him very well at all. But uh, you know, he was an inspiration to everybody. And uh, a bunch of his guitars were just like 10 feet behind my desk down at the Hall of Fame. Hmm. So I would roll my seat over to one of his guitars, pull it out of the case and, and play it. And I wrote that song Chet's right hand, comma, man, uh, was, uh, I, I, I could always feel when I was playing his guitar that I was playing better than I usually do <laughs> because uh, it was his guitar. Uh, it's like he was helping me, you know. Sweet. I liked your little commercial um, for Working the Long Game, which came out in 2018. That album had a lot of co-writers that had uh, big names, uh, like Freddie Johnston and uh, Graham Gouldman, and uh, your pal David Surface was on there, uh, Tom Peterson from Cheap Trick, um, lots of good things. Satellite, which was co-written by Freddie, um, has a real singable chorus. Like a sad- Yeah, I think I think Freedy had that. He kind of had that chorus going already, and brought it to me. And uh, so that's it. Sounds so much like him because it that's his that that chorus. And then I kind of came in with the verses and more lyrics. And, well, Graham Goulman, who's from 10CC, he also wrote Bus Stop. Well, yeah, he not only wrote Bus Stop, he wrote Look Through Any Window. He wrote Heart Full of Soul and For Your Love for the Yardbirds. He wrote uh, No Milk Today and East West for Herman's Hermits. Um, Tally Men for uh, Jeff Beck. I mean, he really was a hit songwriter of the 60s. When he was 20 years old, he was competing with Lennon and McCartney. And I was 10 years old listening to all those songs on the radio. Well, I was going to say the intro to What Time Won't Heal has a bus stop mood to it. You lost your friend She took you down And broke your heart so bad The pieces can't be found Yeah, it's it, they're both in A minor. He's actually cut a version of of that song for his new album that's coming out. So, and it's very similar to the one I did. So I was 
I was very pleased that he liked my record enough to use a lot of the arrangement ideas. If people were to listen to your albums all in a row from start to, you know, start to finish in, in order, do you think that they would recognize things that you learned or changed in your songwriting style? Oh, I don't know. I think sometimes I'm embarrassed that it didn't change more. Hmm. You know, because I tend to go to a lot of the same places. and uh, But good places. Uh, yeah, but I think, I think what happens is that uh, it's just your point of view mm -hmm. of, of the things you're writing about, mm -hmm. uh, the things you choose to make songs out of, the topics and, the, and the just life. You know, that's what changes. You know, musically, a lot of these things, it's like a thread, a long thread to me. Uh, even going back to Feeling the Elephant to my most recent thing, I, I still see there's a musical thread that kind of goes throughout all those records that is kind of similar in a lot of ways. Not everything, but uh, but the things I choose to sing about or, or write about is what changes. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of following your muse. Well, I wanted to ask you about Glenn Tilbrook. You worked with Glenn Tilbrook on Transatlantic Ping Pong, is that correct? It's correct. He needed a bass player, and I came in to play bass. Although there was one song on there where he's playing bass, I'm playing guitar, uh, that he had this specific part that he already knew, and in the amount of time we had, I just I couldn't learn it that fast. And so he said, I'll play it. So he played my bass, and I played guitar. But uh, he really liked what I played, and... Uh, uh, in fact, the song "Untouchable," um, the bass is so loud on that track. I'm, I was, I was kind of thrilled and couldn't believe he, he mixed it as loud as he did. You played the bass on, on "Untouchable." Yeah, it's one of my favorite songs in the world. Oh, I love that song. Oh yeah. that at a studio over in East Nashville. He did part of the record in Nashville and part of the record in London. That's why he called it Transatlantic Ping Pong. I have you down as co-writing Shopping Around, which is just an amazing song by Amy Rigby. Yeah, Amy and I wrote that together and we recorded it in my home studio back when she still lived here. Oh my gosh, that's just a gorgeous uh, start-to-finish song. Well done. Oh, thanks. We, we put in this... Uh, Lou Christie part where we repeat the I can't stop, I can't stop. And it was very much like the Lou Christie's lightning strikes. And we, we would always laugh when we got to that part. I can't stop shopping. Tree. 
Yeah, yeah. So that was a nice song, too. Enjoyed writing with her on that. All right. Uh, well, the last thing was I uh, wanted to ask you about was the long players. And I know that you're the actual founding member. I had asked Brad about it a little bit. and uh, But when I heard an interview on All Things Considered with you, I learned a heck of a lot more about it. You do um, classic albums from start to finish in sequence with different lineups, but with a core lineup of players in Nashville, right? That's correct. And we've been doing it... Uh... Yeah, 17 years. Unbelievable. What a service it is. And, and the song sounds so good. Well, we try to do a good job. We, we're we not a band that learns a specific show and then plays it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So there are tribute bands out there that have every nuance down. What we do is we, we do two rehearsals and then do a show. And, you know, it's pretty darn good for two rehearsals. So I'll just say that. But we're not one of those bands that, goes out and dresses up like somebody or, or uh, goes out and plays the same show again and again and again. We have repeated albums over the years, but uh, not back to back and not where, you know, not where we're, we're just like doing that one thing. We always switch it around. And uh, we've, you know, well over 60 albums that we've done over the years. And, oh, wow. and, uh, and then also some theme nights as well, where we'll, instead of doing an album, we'll do Motown or we'll do Stax. We'll do uh, uh, British Invasion or New Wave or Nuggets. And we're getting ready to do a Sounds of the 70s night this coming weekend, which is more like a, almost like a one-hit wonders of the 70s kind of thing. So we do theme nights as well. But it's, it's a lot of fun. And that led to some work with Cheap Trick. Well, yeah, I had already done uh, Sgt. Pepper. And, uh, and Tom was talking to me about that. And... Uh, and he said to me, you know, we're going to need a uh, someone to sing harmony and to play another guitar part. Would you come over and help us rehearse some of this stuff? And, you know, he didn't actually come out and ask me to go with him. I just thought I was helping him out for one night. Hmm. But uh, at the end of the rehearsal, Bunny Carlos was there. He was he was still with the band at, at that point. And uh, he was saying, oh, I hope, we, I hope you come with us to to uh, Hollywood Bowl, and I went, well, that would be awesome. But uh, at the end of the rehearsal, then Robin said, okay, you're going with us, right? <laughs> and I looked over at Rick Nielsen, he gave me a thumbs up. So, yeah, you know, I ended up playing, uh, well, it was two years in a row we did the Hollywood Bowl, uh, playing Sgt. Pepper, and uh, and then there was uh, two different stints in Las Vegas at two different hotels. And then some sporadic things here and there in Florida and Cleveland and Seattle. Um, I only had to miss one show. I had one show where I missed that was in Chicago that Jimmy Vino did. But uh, yeah, it was a lot, it was a whole lot of fun. Is there anything coming up that you want to mention? I have another record that's ready to come out. Whenever I get to it, I, I put out a live in the studio record. This last year, where I went in with the band that I play live with, uh, which Pat Buchanan on guitar, Keith Brogdon on drums, and Mike Mike Vargo on bass, and uh, those guys play with me all the time. And, and we went into the studio and just ran through a set of my stuff. And myself with a great talent named Jonathan Bright went back in and kind of cleaned it up a little bit. Didn't overdub much, but uh, we just overdub some harmonies. But uh, that's it. And we did like a live in the studio record. And that came out, it's called Two Guitars, Bass, Drums. And that came out uh, about six months ago. And uh, and then I've got another record kind of ready to come out for this next year, or for this year, later this year, that's already done. And, uh, you know, I just don't I just don't stop writing. I don't stop recording. I mean, it's not every day, but it's uh, generally I, I kind of keep a flow going. Well, we're all better for it. We love it. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate you digging so deep into my uh, little history here. Glad to do it. It was a pleasure. And, and a lot of these are going to end up in my Desert Island Disc uh, playlist because they're terrific. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm so glad you like it. Thank you. Na, 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 na. Best record ever made 
Bill Lloyd, it's been a blast talking with you. Okay, well, thanks, Dave. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 16 with Bill Lloyd. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the show, consider giving us a review at Apple Podcasts. Your positive review will help new listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.